I've had a couple of questions, three of them actually, that, are, that may define the whole evening. But before I start in with those, I'll ask if any of you have any questions who are sitting here at present. All right. Uh, this is somebody uh, listening from online who's what, listening to all the classes. And he says, he wants, first he wants me to go back to Sutra number 19, which says, yogis who have not attained the highest state by the time they die remain attached to prakriti, nature, owing to the ego's continued identification with outwardness. And so he writes, I suppose I just don't want to die attached to prakriti, but don't fully grasp what is necessary besides what we're already doing on this path, to discontinue my ego's identification with outwardness. Um, So he wants me to obviously explain that. And then I was also asked a question, because Dhyana was visiting us this weekend uh, from India, Nayaswami Dhyana, and some of you heard her satsang, I think it was on Saturday night, when she talked about a group of people who all got together and were really enthusiastic about how they're going to realize God in this lifetime and they were going to do all this meditation and energize twice a day and made all these commitments and then the day came to actually start and she was the only one who showed up. (laughs) That everybody else had dropped out even before it started. Um, So he was sort of talking to me because I know he's heard me talk in a slightly different way. And I even quoted Swamiji about sort of saying... You know, how realistic is that for most people? But you can also quote Swamiji as saying, you can become a Jivan Mukta in this lifetime. So there's a lot of contradictory um, comments going around. And he was justifiably asking, how do we sort through all of this? Um, one of the great features about Ananda is that it's not, um, it's not a single tone. It's this giant chorus that's happening all the time of extremely diverse personalities. And people move around within the context of Ananda and live in different communities under the influence of different leaders. Or they form alliances or um, relationships with different um, guru bhais really all over the globe. I mean, I just yesterday was in a long conversation with someone from Europe. Just because with Skype and everything, you can just talk to whoever you want to talk to. And you find those people with whom you feel that their vibration is similar to your vibration, and it is not necessarily the people who are, who are physically the closest to you or, or, or only those people. And one of the great things about Ananda is that you can do that, that nobody expects you that you just have to take the whole path from one person. In, in this context, I was talking to a, a woman who had been born and mostly raised at Ananda and was now trying to make her own relationship with the spiritual path, and the, the born and raised at Ananda in the peculiar position sometimes, as someone put it, of knowing everything and knowing nothing. And even when they become interested in the path, what I realize is they generally understand what their parents understood. And that doesn't in any way denigrate their parents' understanding, but their parents' perspective on the path, their particular personal style on the path, their sense of what the priorities are, which may or may not have anything to do with how their offspring are going to be on the path. So they have to really um, start over from many different levels and sort of sort out parental influence, like all of us do. But it has a more subtle tone. Sometimes children think they don't want to be on the path because they don't want to be on the path the way their parents were on the path. So it it all has to work itself out. 
So Swamiji himself, in complete harmony with this, contradicts himself. Master often contradicted himself because true teaching is individual. There's a whole chapter in uh, Swami's autobiography, The Path, which, with just that title, True Teaching is Individual. And one of the great benefits, both of having a master, having a living, living examples of the teachings, having guru bhais, is that they help sort it out. We don't just have to take a written dogma. We can, we can actually see how that is acted out in practice. And with the years and years of extraordinarily varied examples that Swamiji has given us, plus the examples you see all over the world of people he's trained, and he's trained in the way he was trained by Master, and the way Master trained the disciples, you have to, you have to, there's a very strong element of art and intuition involved. You can't just find one statement and then, um, uh, what I want to say is hoist yourself on that petard if it doesn't happen to suit you. Um, I've seen people make themselves crazy by being dogmatic about the spiritual path instead of being intuitive about the spiritual path. So we're working with the scripture now, and it has many different ways that it can be interpreted. And we also have to have the intelligence to understand which of these sutras actually apply to us. And to help make that story clear, I'm going to repeat much of what many of you have heard me say before, but it's absolutely apt of that evening when Swamiji was supposed to talk to us about what it meant to be part of the sadhaka order. The sadhaka order being those people whose lives may be dedicated to God but have the karmic position where they're not able to live in community or they're not willing um, to put themselves essentially under obedience to Ananda. They have other aspects of their life that have to be taken into account. In some cases, it actually means they're holding themselves a little bit distant from the total demands of the path. In other cases, it's karma simply that keeps you there. It has nothing to do with your own heart. But I asked Swamiji, who was giving a satsang for the sadhaka order, to please explain to people what the sadhaka order meant. And so he gave a whole satsang, and the entire satsang was about the intensity of his own renunciation, just how 100% he'd given his life to God, and how after he was expelled from SRF, it was so painful for him to find himself back into the world and in the world and not living in a monastery and not being able to serve God and having to serve his parents and uh, trying to make a divine thing out of that, but how frustrating and despairing he felt, really, which culminated when his parents gave him an automobile. And he absolutely needed the automobile. There was no possibility that he didn't need to have it. But his father wanted to put the pink slip in his name, register it in his name. So here at the age of 36, after having renounced the world completely at the age of 22, he had to own a car. And even as he told the story, tears were running down his cheeks when Swami told it. And he said to us, you, you, you can't understand how painful it was for me. I mean, most of us aspire to own a car. I mean, it never crosses our mind that we're betraying God by owning a car. In fact, we pray for God to give us a car. I give a sermon about buying a car. I, when I was in seclusion and I had to go pick something up out of my car, I found myself sitting in my new car. You know, just sort of in the way of seclusion, after a few minutes I realized that I was sitting in my car, just sitting there, just enjoying my new car. 
And I mean, I was all alone, but I came, became terribly embarrassed and got out of the car and went inside. Swami's weeping because he had to own one. So after he finished the satsang, culminating with that, I mean, we were just, you know, we, nobody could speak or move. It was so uh, powerful what he was saying. So after he's, he's sort of done with that, he turns to me and says, well, is there anything else I could talk about, Asha? I said, why don't you explain to the sadhikas about what it means to be part of the sadhika order? He looks at me. I mean, I thought maybe he'd forgotten which group he was talking to. I mean, I really did. That's why I said it. He just looked at me so bewildered and very fiercely, uh, firmly, he said, Asha, that's all I have been talking about. And then he turned to them and he said, don't even think about trying to live the way I live. He said, you must live in a way that is more sincere to your actual state of consciousness. It was a very extraordinarily unexpected, but when you really meditated on it, it was an extremely powerful um, lesson that he was trying to give us. Because we get caught, and it's actually the ego that gets caught. And with all due respect to my friend who wrote this letter, I don't want to die still identified with outwardness. Well, see, when we get twisted up in that thought, and this is the great danger, it sounds like a really good idea. I'm not going to get identified with outwardness. Well, the dear friend who just asked me this question, who's no doubt listening to this, is a young man recently married about to become a father. Okay, so what are you going to do if you're not going to identify with outwardness? You're going to be a young husband who's constantly repudiating his wife. You're going to be a young father who's always in conflict about the overwhelming attachment that he's going to feel for his child. So having entered into those realities, if you then hold out a a concept that is not reflected by your karma, then all you do is you put yourself at war with each other. And so then you have to face the fact, well, gee... Maybe I'm not that advanced. Well, gee, maybe you're not that advanced. There's no shame in that. And that's why Swami said, don't even think of trying to live the way I lived. You have to live more sincerely in relationship to the way you actually manifest. And one of the ways you can tell how you actually manifest is you can look around. You can just look around at what your spontaneous responses to things are, where you find yourself in your karmic condition. Now, that doesn't mean you abandon yourself, you know, to the, the worst possibilities of materialistic life. It's just that you realize that I need to go through this because you, the, the, at, at war with yourself is the concept that I want to use. Remember a few Sundays ago, if I could remember the date, two or three Sundays ago, when I was giving that sermon and I was talking about my father... And, and how much he loved me, and, how, and the ex- intensely painful um, moment we had when I turned 18, when he, when he saw, it was actually just before I turned 19, when he saw that I was leaving him and never coming back, which was true. I mean, I, from that, literally from that, I moved out of their house, and I never lived in their house again, and, you know, it was just over. My relationship with him was that of, was, was going to be one of childhood, not of adulthood. And I mean, I knew that much more than he did, but he at least saw 
that the relationship that he'd enjoyed so much of me as a child was over. It was very, very painful for him and extremely painful for me. But then I asked the question of the congregation, and I ask it again now, should he have loved me less? Because, you see, that was the only alternative. The alternative of actual detachment, of really, you know, of, of, of just transcending it was not an option. The only way he could really live it was to give himself to it completely and then sort of see where that would take you. I don't know how wise he got on the other side of it, but even us as yogis, Swamiji once remarked about someone, he said, so-and-so seems more detached than I am. But Swami's phrase was, he's just withheld. And being withheld is not the same as being detached. Swamiji said about himself, he seemed more attached because he was fully committed and fully engaged. But commitment and attachment are not the same thing. Commitment and identification are not the same thing. But if we have to ask the question, it's, it's an anxiety. It's an, I don't want to die with, with this. Well, if you really are that detached from outwardness, you don't get yourself as enmeshed. You know, you're not compelled by all these desires. It's the way Swami put it to me once, you don't get out of karma by doing it badly. You know, once you have embraced a human relationship, once you've fathered a child, once you're going to, to do the household a reality, you have to really do it, and you have to do it beautifully for God. And the question of how much you identify with it, yes, it comes up, and yes, you work with it in your meditation, and yes, you constantly offer everything about it to the divine, but be careful. Don't just sort of play a game of not really being committed or being withheld in the name of being spiritual. Because it's really not the same. You know, give life your heart. Bless everything that's grown. The only way you can not identify with it is that you commit yourself to it, but you commit to what the power on the other side of it. This is the job I've been asked to do. One man at Ananda supposedly said to his wife on their wedding night, he said... I want you to understand being married to you is a job. Now, don't misunderstand. I intend to do a good job, he said. But I perceive it as a job that God has given me to do. Now, that's very unromantic, but that's actually very spiritual. Because if you really say, this is a job I have to do, then you've got that little bit of, this isn't me, but also, I intend to do a good job of this. I'm not going to imagine that I'm going to detach myself by doing a bad job. And the fear of attachment does not usually lead to detachment. It usually leads to a mess, as a general rule. Because we don't then do a good job, because we spend the whole time being afraid of really giving ourselves to this. So the question of, you know, dying still attached to outwardness, now this is where there's two different points of view. It depends on your temperament. I love Diana. I admire her like, like everything. And she gets a lot of power from willpower. She gets a lot of power from fierce determination. I don't. (laughs) So start Skyping Diana, you know. (laughs) If that's really your Bob, go there where you'll get it. I get power from something else. I get more power from the flow. I get more power from surrendering. I get get more power is not the word I mean. I, I, I find more freedom without that sort of what for me comes out to be being at war with myself. 
For others, it comes out to be a focused, dynamic sort of victory. But I get to that place um, by being very careful not to put up pictures that I'm supposed to then fill. So when I read, if you die still attached to outwardness, then you'll be forced to be reborn. And I say, well, say la vie, that's the way it's going to go, I guess. You know, it's, it's not a picture that I can put on my life. But in a sense, we're coming at the same thing by thinking, I love God. That's what I want. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip now because there's several things that are part of this. Part of the, go ahead, let Saranya talk about it. I realize this is probably not the main point that you were bringing up. That's right, there's a lot of points but, here. Okay, but you talked a lot about having children. Right. And having worked with Sunday school here, I have had people talk to me about the fact that Ananda looks like it's sort of, um, I don't mean against children or against having children, but it doesn't uh, encourage, you know, it's, it's not welcoming in that sense to children. But I... Um, I, when I first read the AY, one of the really big things, because at that time I was a, a young mother, and one of the really big things that drew me to it, in addition to many things, you know, that it brought East and West together, but uh, looking at um, Lahiri, here was a householder. And I'm, for almost 20 years, I held on to that because it took me almost that long to get here, that here was a householder, and yet here, and I, you know, the idea that he was already uh, um, a master right. didn't occur to me. But, but he was an example to me of a person who could find God even though he had a family. Well, since then, now here at Ananda, I still see many examples of people who are not masters yet, but who are um, householders and have children. And I, even though I know that there are not a lot, but there are, you know, tremendous examples. And so, you know, you know I understand what you're saying about giving your heart fully to your child, but I still do think that you can give your heart fully to your child and still not, um, uh, but not, not have not, that struggle, you know, because, yeah, exactly. because God, God is first because your children grow up and then they have their own stuff. You know, and you actually, I mean, in um, the prophet talks about your children are sort of on loan to you. And your children, <laughs> when they get to be around teenage, they start to remind you. That, that you've done your work, you know, around 16. They keep telling you you're finished. I mean, I didn't believe it until they were in their 20s, probably, and maybe not then. But, but I'm just saying that the idea that you, what I hear you saying is that if you have children, you are splitting your attention no, with no, God. No, no, Saranya, you misunderstood me completely, 100%. It was a complete misunderstanding. I'm saying if you have children, that has to be your sadhana. You can't always be... And I'm answering the person who asked me the question. You can't then be thinking, generally speaking, too strong a preoccupation with an absolute renunciation when you are raising children simply puts you at war with your dharma. And so that's exactly what I'm saying, is that you have to commit yourself to that, do it with looking through it to the divine instead of looking behind you thinking that, oh, here I am caught in this. How can I not be identified with this? I mean, just even that very thought almost always 
divides you. And then I offer the alternative, this is a job. I mean, that's a way to keep a little bit of separation. It's my job to be a father. It's my job to be a husband, and I'll be superb at it. But it's not me. It's just my job. But that's a way of of keeping that tiny little piece of you apart, but still not being afraid to commit yourself to it completely. Just one more thought. You know, when we put the school in this building, which we did from the first day, we thought all those classrooms were going to be Sunday school rooms. And we had this idea that now that we had the school here, we were going to have all these great Sunday school rooms, and we were going to have this capacity to really... Because we moved in with the school at the same time we moved into the church. And this uh, terrible thing happened right at the start, which is as soon as we tried to put Sunday school in our school rooms, the rooms got messed up for the teachers. And we instead of gaining Sunday school space by having a school, we lost the little bit that we had. And we, had, and we thought we were going to have all these perfect set-up child rooms. It was a terrible misunderstanding. So, and the second fact is, and I'm just going to broadcast this out into the ether, you know, for the 27 years that David and I have been here, we've been waiting for the youth education minister to show up. And every time any youth education minister shows up, they become a full-time teacher. And then they're not interested in youth education for our uh, temple. But the impression that this temple gives is that we're not committed to children as a part of the spiritual path. That is a complete falsehood. We, We have that impression because in 27 years, except for different periods, well, when before different periods the Sunday school has flourished more, before Gary was taken over by the school and gave up the Sunday school, and, and I don't mean to be unkind to others. They've all, everybody's done their best. But we don't, have, we don't have for children what I have thought we would have from children, for children from the first day I arrived here in January of 1987. We don't have it. So when you look at this, it looks like we're not into children, except that we've dedicated ourselves to a school. So I I just want to clarify that. If we were actually able to do what we should be doing, it would be self-evident that having families and raising spiritual children is as much a part of our path as anything else. That's what Lahiri Mahashaya put forward. And it would make it more clear to people that that's what we're trying to do. but, But there's this mindset, and that's what I'm concerned about, this mindset that reads here, oh, you know, I'm not supposed to be identified, and then spends all its time being worried about the life it's living. Instead, no, no, just live your life and let your life teach you instead of trying to impose on your life some picture of what it's supposed to be. That's why I was going back to Swami. Don't even try to live like him unless it's really natural to you, unless you can't bear the thought of owning your own car. You know, and then you're probably not going to find yourself that embroiled. It won't be an issue. Um, I mean, I've heard Swami many times, you know, just say to you know, monks and householders, you've taken on those children. They're your responsibility now. Yes, you're right. You don't get to meditate as much. And no, you can't take that job. And yes, your freedom is gone, but that's your dharma. And you know, he's, not, he's not sympathetic in the sense of, oh, well, maybe you just don't really have to do it. No, you took it on. Now you have to finish it. And you have to finish it according to its terms. And yes, you do your best to keep the picture of God and the detachment and that they're just loaned to you and all of that. 
But that doesn't mean that you withhold your energy. You do not get out of karma by doing it badly. You, you do it, you get through karma by realizing that it's always God that you're serving. And if, if it's God you're serving, you have to serve them very, very well. And that's, that's the thought form that we want. That's how you don't identify with outwardness, is you identify only with the God within. And I'll go on from there in a moment, but go on with what you're going to say. I, I was just reminded of a conversation I was having with um, a friend on the path, and I was sort of mentioning the inherent conflict for the yogi in having children, in that, you know, especially on a path of meditation that we're supposed to be detaching from the world and sort of not enmeshing ourselves, to make a long story short. And um, she brought up something that was kind of comforting in that, um, you know, reminding me that in the AOI it also says that um, a child born to a family of yogis is a very great blessing for a soul and a rare one at that. And so thinking of it in those terms and thinking of it that this is a great blessing for the soul that has come through these bodies into this world and they're here for their own dharma, but you as parents, you know, have that role to play in their lives. And so just sort of fully committing yourself to the lila, so to speak. You talked about your role in the school play, you know, and that you were detached on the one hand knowing that you weren't Mother Mary, but sort of throwing yourself with all your energy into the role and and the sadness because you could feel, you know, her heart. Mm-hmm. So just understanding that you're not this body, but at the same time, you're you're playing the, through this body. I think the greater it's a greater danger not to commit your energy than it is to become attached. I think you're balancing threats here. And I think it's worse to hold back than it is to to go so far and then have to work through what happens when they walk away from you. That's why I said, would my father have done better to have loved me less? It would be impossible to have said that because, of course, it was the great blessing of my life that he loved me like he did. You know, we had a wonderful rapport when I was younger. So, of course, it was a very positive thing. It, It hurt him in the end, and so he had to learn from that because it was too personal. But he will learn more from having given his heart than he would have from holding back. And that's, that's the subtlety that I'm trying to address here. And that's why I'm trying to say it's all part of the bigger picture. You have to look at the teachings that really are your teachings. I'm surprised sometimes when I hear people even, you know, 25 years later, how, how twisted they've gotten up by trying to take on teachings that were not really their teaching. And, and instead of just really feeling comfortable with one's own reality and learning the lessons that are right in front of you. We, you know, we've talked about this before, how a seed has to go through every stage before it becomes a plant. And so you can only just, you know, just expand a layer at a time. You can't just skip a whole section. And, you know, if you're... When I first married David, um, he had to take a trip somewhere and he was gone for three weeks, which seemed like a really, really, really long time at that point. It was a very high percentage of our life together, those three weeks. So it had a, you know, I was really just anxious for him to come home. And I was expressing it in my way because I tend to just, whatever's going on, I articulate it to whoever happens to be standing around me. So I said something about it. And this man said to me, oh, be careful. You don't want to get attached. I looked at him. I said, do you think you know, do you think I would have married this guy if I wasn't attached to him? Like, come on, get real. 
It was like, of course I'm attached to him. It's just like way too late for that. You know, I, I mean, it just wasn't a, oh, this is what God wants and I, you know, this unit of consciousness will go along with the divine will. Absolutely not. I mean, it just came out of a very powerful desire to be with him, which was thwarted by his absence. You know, I'm not proud of it, but I wasn't ashamed either. Why should I be? You know, it was self-evident that I'd married him out of a desire to be with him. Maybe people don't marry out of a desire, but I did. So why pretend? That's what, I, that's what I'm trying to say. Why pretend? You know, I was identified as a female. He was a very handsome man. I mean, that was the story. It wasn't any other story. I mean, also, in my own, for my own discipline, I, I, I won't say I exaggerated it, but I didn't want to fool myself. I thought it was very, very important not to tell myself a story that wasn't true. You know, it just... Do you see what I mean? That's, that's the sort of nuance that I'm trying to work with here. Yes, of course, we don't want to identify with outwardness. And this goes back to the will I find God in this lifetime or not. You know, I'm going to find God on this lifetime. I'm not going to identify with outwardness and therefore have to reincarnate. Well, is that really, does that actually relate, you know, when to your reality. I mean, even a man who's attracted to a woman is pretty darn identified with outwardness. You know, it's just like the energy is there. You identify as a male, you're attracted to a female. It's like this isn't necessarily the next step. It's something absolutely exquisite to aspire to. It's something to always sort of keep in mind. And when you see your life going awry, ask yourself if you can directionally move that way. Yeah, but it's all directional. You don't paste it on just as a whole outward reality. If it's a mindset that works for you, you know, when I first started the whole Patanjali course, I was explaining that what happened to me when I read this book in India was that word, identification with, really captured my imagination, and it became for me and has become for me an extremely useful tool the concept as a directional concept. Oh, I see, I'm identifying with this reality. But let me think how to say this. I feel comfortable doing that because I'm also very committed. I don't have, I, for me, I don't feel any conflict. And I'm not sure the person I'm talking to ask, ask these questions really feels conflict. I don't really know. I just don't want it to go there. So we have to think about this, you know, which way we're going to handle it. And I want to go over to I'm going to skip here because when I was when I was meditating on this I also came to this sutra which is 123 and now I'm skipping 21 and 22 which we still need to talk about tonight but I'm going to skip to 23 because it relates to what I'm talking about he says otherwise through devotion and complete self-offering to God the highest samadhi can be attained and he, these are with keen and one-pointed concentration which I also have questions about So then Swami says some really interesting things here. And he sort of says, I'm puzzled by what Patanjali says because Swami says about himself, he says he doesn't feel that Patanjali has described his own spiritual path. Because Swami says his own spiritual path is, my life has been spent in giving to others in my guru's name. And I'm happy that I've done so. And I feel increasing bliss, complete non-attachment, sincere love for all mankind and indifference to everything but God. But I don't see that I fit very well into many of the categories or conditions 
that Patanjali has stipulated for the advanced soul. And then he comments, on the other hand, he remembers a man who used to meditate all the time who really was, did not manifest any real signs of spiritual energy. Now, earlier he says that Master stressed attunement. And he finds that Patanjali doesn't stress attunement as much as he... Nishkama needs the microphone. That, that Patanjali doesn't stress attunement with the guru to the same extent that Yogananda did. Swami then concedes that all masters must agree with their, each other. And in fact, later in the book, Patanjali, the question of attunement comes up. But what, what's, what Swami's also saying here, and this goes back to um, the question of commitment, identifying with outwardness, is that even though we're reading Patanjali, and even though we're studying what he wrote, we're studying it through the eyes of Swami Kriyananda. And we're studying it through the living example of Swami Kriyananda. And he emphasizes often, and what Swami says is, my life, his life, has been attunement and service to the guru. And attunement and service to the guru takes you in all kinds of directions. And Swamiji himself tells us that when he accepted the commission from Master, especially the commission to found these communities in the way Master envisioned them, many other aspects of Swamiji's own spiritual life, he had to just put it on hold. I mean, and also his monastic life. He had to sort of, to a certain extent, put it on hold. He'd lived in that... um, atmosphere of the monastery of SRF where he was very protected at all times and, you know, your monastic life was your priority. Now he had to basically make a householder community with a bunch of hippies. And it was just like so far away from what he would have done if that had been his priority. And he even said at that time, he realized that his salvation was at risk. But he said he was, he was willing to risk his salvation in order to serve his guru in this way. Because master attunement and service was what master had given him to do. So he did it. And he let other aspects of the path either just float along behind him or he just had to turn away from them because they didn't apply. And then what Swami is so modestly saying here is, and yet, my guru promised me I would find God, and yet, I have all these qualities of someone who's highly advanced, but I didn't seem to get there the way Patanjali told me to get there. And I think we have to just really hear that and realize that if we're called to be a householder, you know, we're called to do it because it's our karma, but it's also, how can you have a householder community unless you have householders? That's, you know, one of the, that's why Swami himself became a householder for a number of years because we were not a householder community. He was trying to build a householder community and there were no householders. And as he put it, he said, in the, he said you were embarrassed if you were married and totally ashamed if you had children. It just was, it was no way to build a householder community. So he lived as a householder for a while and just showed the community that it doesn't make any difference. And that's really our example, but by... Um, putting that forward, he's, he's helping us, even by saying what he said, he's helping us to understand, you know, find your way through this according to what's natural to you. This is not a dogma. This is a, a scripture. But find your way through it according to where Master wants us to be. Now, my friend. That was pretty much what I was going to wind up saying uh-huh. when I read about all those otherwises. 
Um, mm -hmm. I didn't read that as a, a laundry list of necessary conditions right. to uh, be fully realized. Right. It was just a bunch of ways, this way and that way, it was far more important to uh, do your own dharma as best as you possibly can. Yeah. And you didn't need to carry all the other stuff around as a checklist and wring your hands if you don't make it. One of the, um, and I, you know, I like to do my best these days not to cast aspersions on SRF, so I'm, I don't want this to sound like an aspersion. <laughs> so actually, I don't have to use them. But, you know, a certain formal monasticism is confusing in a householder context because formal monastics need, must necessarily live in a certain way. They have to be held back from everybody to a large extent. That's exactly what Swami was describing. I think it, was, it may have been in a place called Ananda. I'm not even really sure where he talked about it. But he talked about the dilemma he faced as a committed monk trying to found a householder community. And all the rules of his monastic life were totally contradicted by the necessity of what he needed to do to serve. And how was he going to reconcile those two? And he chose service to his guru. And that was a very valid choice. Um, part of what was happening at Ananda at the time, and that was like 81, 82, was that so many people were monastic. There was just this... this uh, this, so many people had forced themselves to be monastic, and that's really the right word I want to use. It wasn't a spontaneous inner calling. It was a reasoned attitude, if I'm serious about the spiritual path, this is what I should do. And so there were, uh, uh, the community was losing its spontaneity because people were not in tune with themselves, and there was a certain spontaneous joy that was beginning to go out of things. And so Swami himself announced that he felt guided to renounce his monasticism and become a householder. And what that presented to people was the idea that you could think about what you felt guided to do. And then a great many of the monks and nuns discovered that they felt guided not to be monks and nuns anymore, <laughs> which was, at the time, the right decision. Because it, there was just an energy that was trying to happen in a different way. Now let me think what I was trying to say about that. But it didn't say that any of the other austere was wrong. It's just a question of the art and science of it. The art and the science and the intuition that has to be. And the comfort with your own reality. Just the comfort with your own reality. Um, going back to will I find God in this lifetime, my comfort with my own reality is not to worry about it. It's like I ask myself, honey, if you're not putting forth your best effort, you ought to put forth your best effort and so that's self-evident to me. And I don't feel that I get more out of myself by railing against myself. And I don't get more out of myself by setting a standard that I myself doubt even as I set it. You know, when you make an affirmation, the affirmation has to be bigger than you are, but not so big that every time you affirm it, your subconscious repudiates it. And whether or not I realize God in this lifetime, it's not going to be very long. Because... Here we are. You know, look how deep we are into this. So if there's some stuff left that we have to work through, fine. If, you know, in the final hour it all falls, falls away, that's great too. But it's just not something I can comprehend. And to just make a declaration that is not a spontaneous expression of my own reality. But as I said, when I, every time I talk about this, lots of people have exactly the opposite reaction to that. Wow, I could do this. Instead of it, it, feel, it making them feel diminished, they feel greatly empowered by that thought. 
the thought that I could actually do this. When I was asked this question yesterday morning or this morning, that was just how it was brought to me. Uh, The man said to me, he felt greatly empowered by what Diana said. It just crossed his mind that maybe he really could do this. And I didn't feel one way or another. I just felt, isn't it wonderful? Everybody's different. You know, just so different. I've come to peace with it at this point. It's in God's hands anyway, whatever we say. The point is what works. Just do what works. This is not dogma. This is science. This is yoga. You know, the the definition of of being a yogi is you work with what is. In one of Swami's commentaries, he he distinguished between the true definition of a jnani, of jnana yoga versus um, following the path of jnana versus being a yogi. This was when Krishna is talking to Arjuna in one of those passages, the way Swami explains it. He talks about true jnana yoga denies the reality of all of this and just goes only to the absolute and just refuses to accept this is happening. And in every situation, just goes for the absolute single truth and, and ignores the duality altogether. Whereas what, Arjuna, what Krishna was saying to Arjuna about being a yogi is you work scientifically with what is. You're in a physical body. You don't repudiate its reality. You understand how the energy flows in it. You use the physical body through meditation, through pranayama, through yoga postures. You work with it and then build upon it. And that's that when I, when I read that definition, I thought, yeah, that, that's how I think about it. I'm building on what is. I'm building on the, I'm working with the reality as it is right now, without in any way, and this is an important part of it, repudiating the possibility of the higher truth. Wow, if we can just not identify with outwardness, then we'll be free in this incarnation. That's a fascinating and fabulous idea. And always one just kind of to keep as an interesting vibration at the side of your mind. You know, just sort of see yourself in that light. Work with it, but don't use it as a hammer. Because chances are, you know, chances are a few little desires will be there. But who knows by the end. Remember my friend Paula uh, when she had overdosed on the codeine medicine and she thought she was, she was in fact dying um, and she was uh, throwing up or sitting in the bathroom, splashing water in her face on the floor, leaning over the toilet. She wasn't vomiting, but she was kind of holding herself there, staring into the toilet bowl. And she, she saw the tunnel of light. She felt her consciousness going into it. And it crossed her mind. And she said to God, am I going to die staring into this toilet bowl? <laughs> it just seemed like such an undignified way to die. You know, she'd sort of crawled into the bathroom with splashing water on her face from the tub. But she started going into the tunnel of light. And she remembered a dress that she had put on layaway. And it pulled her out, pulled her away from the tunnel. Right. Now, it wasn't her time to die. Anyway, she was in a bad way, but she wasn't going to die. But, you know, that desire was just there, and it grabbed her. Now, really think about that. I mean, I asked her later, did you buy the dress? I didn't know whether, like, did you just get it and figure I better work this out? Oh, she said, no. (laughs) I canceled that dress right away. But... um, uh, let's see, Ramana Maharshi. Let me just try to think about this. I was trying to think whether it was his mother or another disciple. 
But it, I think it was the story. I, I have to have this story. I don't have it exactly accurate, but I think it was another disciple of his that he was helping to die. And he was helping that disciple to go through the various you know, stages of detachment. But somehow or another, I believe Ramana Maharshi left for a few minutes. And in that moment, some karma grabbed the man. And, 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 the, and he wasn't there to sort of mitigate it for him. And I think when his mother died, he never left her, if I have the story right. If I don't have the details right, you get the point. And I often think about that. You know, it just like, if we really have to let go of this world, what's going to keep inserting itself? I mean, you can tell when you meditate what keeps inserting itself. Or when you, when, you, when, when you fall asleep at night, when you meditate, what is it that just keeps, you know, what keeps circling? When you first wake up in the morning, what's circling around your consciousness? What's holding you? Because what happens is we start going into that light and everything else starts going away. Everything that we identify with starts going away. But, of course, that which we're still holding on to, that's the mechanism that's described here in Patanjali. It's, it's a... a a reality. It's not just a, what am I trying? It's not just poetry. It's like we start going into that light and, and we can only go into that light insofar as we completely identify with that light and don't identify with anything else. Oh, what about my child? What about my wife? What about my unfinished painting? You know, what about the pain I'm feeling? What about my desire for this or desire for that? If, if those things are not consistent with a vibration of pure light. And so that's why we reincarnate, because we're not able to merge into that light. We're pulled from there to whatever astral world is appropriate, and those desires stay with us. But we just have to, at all times, be working with this. You know, just at all times. But it comes down to a really incredibly mundane and everyday reality. You know, do I trust God right now? Am I in joy right now? See, all the, all the teachings intersect. The eight manifestations of God, love, peace, joy, wisdom, calmness, divine light, sound. In every moment, what station am I listening to? That was how Diana put it yesterday. What station am I listening to? And always we're trying to listen to the divine station. That's what we're supposed to be doing. The, the big picture takes care of itself if we take care of the little picture. And sometimes we imagine that we're taking care of the big picture by thinking about it a lot, when sometimes too much concentration diverts us from the actual job at hand. Am I joyful? Am I committed? Am I conscious? Am I dedicated? Am I serving? Am I selfless? Am I in tune to the guru? Am I joyfully giving? Because that's defining who you are. It's not the big ideas and what you're sort of fascinated by. It's what you're actually doing. That's why I'm saying if you have a wife, if you have a child, if you have a job, this is where it comes back to the necessity for excellence in everything that you do. Because what keeps us from excellence is our attachment to qualities other than the divine. So we just keep striving for excellence to do the job Whatever that job has been given to us, we have to do it as well as we can. And if we identify with the flow of energy, and that energy is the right kind of energy, everything else takes care of itself. Okay. Let's take a break. We have another question still. Okay.
Um, going to the sutra that I had skipped to, which is Sutra 123, which I skipped 21 and 22 to get there, um, one of the lines that Swami has in here is that, to me, my guru said, God will not come to you until the end of life. Death itself will be the final sacrifice you'll have to make. Someone just asked me, what does that line mean? Death itself will be the final sacrifice. The fact is, Swamiji speculated all through his life about what that might mean. And everybody else speculated with him. Um, He could never fully understand it, honestly, because he didn't see what kind of a sacrifice death would be. He had a complete detachment from when he died or how he died. It meant nothing to him. So he could never quite grasp what Master might have meant by that. For a long time, he thought he might die a martyr's death. He thought he might be assassinated. And, I mean, even for a while, at periods of time, people took it upon themselves to watch the crowds. You know, the last years of his life, there were always people who were watching the crowd. Um, Because he really thought that might happen. And it occurred to me at one point that nobody uses a gun anymore. Everybody uses a bomb because there had been a lot of conversation on this side. If he died a martyr's death, what would that be like? And then one day it occurred to me that a lot of us might just be with him on the other side of that one. But the fact is, when I was thinking about him dying a martyr's death, meaning of sudden violent death is what the way that meant to me, was um, that the thing about it would be that it would be a tremendous... I, I talked to him about this. What that would mean would be he would draw to a focus within his own physical body a great deal of negative energy, bad karma, so to speak, or karma for others, for the cause that he was serving, for his disciples, like Jesus being crucified on the cross, or Gandhi being shot. And there was a lot of energy was drawn to a focus and then worked through that physical body. Um, and so Swami would talk about that he would be happy to die a martyr's death, to use that phrase, he wanted it because then his death could be useful. And when I thought, how could it be useful? And so I was asking him that because a lot of energy is drawn to a focus and the physical body being sacrificed, a lot of karma has worked out that way. Jesus' disciples were raised high spiritually on the day of Pentecost. Master said that was because Jesus had worked out so much of their karma through the crucifixion of his body. So there's that reality. Also, sometimes using Gandhi as an example, when the violence and the antipathy came to such a terrible focus in his death, it had, an, it had a sobering effect on people's antagonism and it helped at least for a time to mitigate the antagonism because it had been so exaggerated. All of that, of course, turned out to be completely moot because he just died in his, in his home suddenly. But toward the end, the thought was thinking that he might... He, he started interpreting it to mean that he would have to delay his own death. That he would have to sacrifice the opportunity to leave his body and stay in that body for a long time. Because it was such tapasya for so long there at the end to have to stay in that body. But nonetheless, there was... I mean... Many, many times there was discussion about it and it never came to any satisfactory conclusion. And so it was just something that we just waited to see what would happen. Yes? I was maybe wondering if it was possible that his final sacrifice was to have to leave us um, and that there was, I won't say attachment, but there was love there 
and there were comments he made in the last year that made me feel like there, he would come back for us later, that there was a little bit of regret to leave us because, he, because we were being helped by him. And so I don't, I don't know how, what his emotional state was exactly, but in a way, uh, there, when, when he looked at Narayani and then he passed, it was almost as if, I'm sorry, I have to go. I don't know. Well, there certainly could be that. I think that the master lives on many levels. At the same time, that would be mitigated by the experience that so many people have had since he left his body of a far greater um, presence than was there when he was in his body. So that would contradict the thought that he would in any way feel like he wasn't helping us by leaving. It's, I think that it's happened on many levels. I found a note... I found some notes I made from about a decade ago when Swami was in one of his extremely maybe-this-is-it kind of moments. And he said, you know, it'll, um, it'll be hard for you after I'm gone, but it'll make you strong. It'll be good for you. That's how he put it. It'll be hard for you, but it'll be good for you. And he knew that himself because he went through it. He lost his guru so young in his life. Had so, had so few years with his guru, he knew exactly what it was going to be like for us. Yeah. And you still, I read, now, everything at all has such greater poignancy when you read the account in his autobiography, The Path, about when Master passed and how he was sitting there in the Biltmore Hotel and he wasn't looking at Master because he was taking down his words. He was writing it down. And then there was a gasp and Swamiji looked up and said, what happened, what happened? And someone said, Master has fainted. And then Swamiji, in the moment, he gives us his own stream of consciousness. Oh, no, Master, you did not faint. You would not faint. You're gone. Swami just knew that he was gone in that moment. He felt it. Um, but you read that now and you think about what happened to us. You know, just like Swamiji is gone, just like that. And, and you, all that Swamiji went through with that, we understand it in a very different way now because having gone through it in our own time too, and especially those people who were in the room, Swami's gone? Really? He's gone? My. What can we think about it? When I, there was about, was about, Swami died on the 20th of April here. We had the final service on the 19th of May, and then we had to come back from the village. About five or six weeks from the time he died, it was like when I came out of that, I, and we'd gone to Italy, we'd gone to the village, So many different things had happened. I really felt like I was coming back from another planet. Just it was just such a a, almost actually probably through my seclusion or at least into the seclusion. I just felt like we just were transferred to some complete other reality. And even though we were going through the motions of ordinary life here, everything just was so different. Until I came back from seclusion, and then we started buying a farm. So it's really been. Just until the last few days, it's sort of been like this constantly. <laughs> very, it's just a very interesting time. I don't think it'll settle down for another year or so, really, into really into any kind of actual rhythm of life. We'll see. Now, any other questions or comments from all that we were talking about before? <clears throat> okay, the other question <clears throat> was about um, Sutra number 21. In truth, I've pretty much answered it with everything else that I've said. With keen and one-pointed practice, 
this highest attainment comes easily. And here, uh, the commentary is very short. Keen means intense. One-pointed means concentrated. Not letting any thoughts, no matter how interesting, divert the yogi from his focus on what he is attempting. Um, Both these aspects of a person's spiritual efforts are difficult. For one thing, because of past habit. For another, because of the mind's constant call to outwardness. So my friend writes to me, most of my ideas for creative upliftment come when I am attempting to meditate. (laughs) Then when I'm done meditating, it is usually time for me to go and be active. Creative thoughts for me at this point at least do not come with as much clarity and dynamism at any other time than they do when I have my energy withdrawn inward. I want to be one-pointed in concentration on devotional stillness and occasionally glimpse that, but usually a creative thought will make me feel obligated to pursue it since it may be the only time I receive it or perceive it. Now, the first thing I remembered was how Swami Kriyananda used to contrast himself with Brother Bhaktananda. And Swamiji said whenever he would meditate, we described his life, he said, Swamiji said he always felt like he was sitting on a volcano of of creative ideas. And he said he could no more stop the overflow of that volcano than you could stop a volcano. It wasn't like he had a choice. He was just always being overwhelmed with creative ideas. Brother Bhaktananda, by contrast, you know, was a deeply devoted and a very pure and high soul who, Swami just frankly said, never had a creative idea ever. And Bhaktananda used to feel a slight, envy would be too strong a word, but, you know, he, he wished he could be more like Swami with all this creativity flowing. And Swamiji would sometimes wish he could be more like Bhaktananda and just not be troubled. Bhaktananda, of course, means you know, bliss through devotion. To just be able to be devotional and not have this constant overflowing of creative ideas that were constantly taking him you know, out of himself to, to make them happen. So part of it is um, just what we're born to do. And all that creativity from Swamiji was his master's instruction to him. And there was no... Um, there was no alternative. There was no alternative to it, um, he, as he said. It, it took more effort to stop it. I actually was thinking just um, just this morning uh, about how, when Master died, Swamiji was left um, under the guidance of Rajasi, and Rajasi had his brain tumor and so on so quickly after Master died that. He, there was very little time when Rajasi actually functioned as the president of SRF. It was long enough for Swamiji to have talked to him about the ideas and thoughts he had and the directions he wanted to go. Rajasi was an entrepreneur, and he was a man. He was a self-made businessman, and he recognized who Swami was and what Swami could accomplish and endorsed the direction of his energy. But then, of course, Rajasi became ill and lived for a while more, but because, of the, because the problem was in his brain, he wasn't able to act with the authority of his office. And then very shortly after, Swamiji found himself under the auspices of Dhyamata, who, who was a totally different temperament, had come at 17 um, and had never herself 
really done anything, you know, except to be an utterly devoted disciple. But she was not an entrepreneur or a self-made businesswoman or anything. And so Swamiji went from sort of seeing an open channel for the magnetism that Master was pouring through him to suddenly being confined like this, which is why the way it all had to play out. But I was just really um, contemplating the effect of Rajasi's death on Swamiji and how he himself undoubtedly knew the implications of it. Because here he was with all of this creative energy flowing through him, which Rajasi understood, and he knew, he knew even then that Daya didn't understand at all. Okay, no. I'm sorry. Okay, that Swami himself knew the implications of Rajasi dying and what he was going to be engaged with, with Daya, and all the creativity that Master was giving him and what was he going to do with it? And how was he going to find? How was it going to find expression? So you had a question. Well, no, I took the mic because I thought it was ironic that Kriyananda means well, not ironic, but Kriyananda means bliss through action, literally. Right. But it it also means kriya, right? Meditation. And bliss through kriya, but I'll, yeah, yeah and the action. kriya meditation, right? Because you you it was um it's explained that you know kriya does not refer necessarily right. to Lahiri Mahashaya's kriya that there's many other kinds. So it. Swami's name is an exact statement of his life. Right. Because it was both realities. Because everything he did came from deep inner awareness. So to go back to the question of creative ideas coming in meditation, it's again, it's a nuanced question. Because if it just becomes a habit of restlessness, um, that's one thing. But if in fact your attunement is through your creativity... And if when you meditate, that creativity flowers, you have to work with that in a, in a natural way. I'm, and, and Swamiji, again, he's the example. That's why you don't just go from the scripture, you have to go from the living example. And Swamiji himself says, you know, that his meditations are often interrupted by his creative ideas. But those creative ideas come to you you have to begin to discern the difference between, oh, I have, I'm having a creative idea, I get to stand up for my meditation, and the fact that this is really what you should be concentrating on. That's the reality that you're, you're forced to do. I mean, I have to speak from my own life that I, you, I mean, even on Tuesday morning, sometimes you'll see me, I've just learned that if I'm working on something and the answer to it comes right in the middle of that meditation, I really have to act on it then. Because if I don't act on it then, it won't be there later. And if it's not there later, it won't make me feel that I did the right thing. I feel like if it's really given to me in that moment, I really have to go act on it. Even if that means I'd literally stand up from a meditation, even from a group meditation, and leave the room and just go back to my computer and sort out, usually it's writing, you know, just suddenly the way to say it comes to me and I don't want to lose it. But that's, the, that's a long rhythm that... That's the work I'm given to do, and that's where attunement comes to me a lot is through creative work. So it's not a surprise that when I'm meditating, the guidance for that creative work comes because it's very closely aligned. But I know when I'm just saying, oh, wow, I have an idea. I get to stop meditating now. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's a nuance of just being able to tell whether your mind is just wandering or whether you're really being guided. 
And there's the, because of the way Swami was and because of how he contrasted himself with Bhaktananda, you realize that there's, there's a truth that you just have to find on your own. And um, again, you have to look at yourself realistically. Where is your real... You know, one might think of oneself as a deep, still, meditating yogi, but maybe you're not. Maybe you're a creative person who is more of a karma yogi. So a master told Swamiji, you know, uh, that your life will be one of intense activity and meditation. And Swami always noticed that he said activity first. He didn't leave the word meditation off, but he said your life will be intense activity and meditation. And so that's partly how Swami evaluated it. Well, if I'm intensely engaged in these projects and in my meditation this comes to me and I really feel it's the divine inspiration, I can't push it away. It's not right to push it away. And, you know, all you have to do is not respond in the moment because you're certain you're going to remember it and then realize that if you, because you didn't respond, it's absolutely gone. You only have to do that a few times before you start responding, whether it's getting up out of bed in the middle of the night to write it down or keeping a notepad next to you when you meditate or getting up and going back to the computer because you just have to. It's just... You have to begin to feel it within yourself. What is God asking of you? And it's a very, very personal, like everything else. I, I did think of a question, though. So if Swamiji understood himself as a person who has a lot of creative ideas and understood the implications of Rajasi no longer being in power and it being a very different bhav, I guess, so to speak, did he express that during those years before he was kicked out of SRF that he sort of lamented the idea that he may never be able to act on all the things he tried? Because, I mean, you know, there are stories like what happened in India where he got that land and then it was... Well, that was um, the end. Next, right. Yeah, I mean, getting the land in India was the, the final chapter in a 12-year lo- saga. But, I mean, I, I know he expressed frustration, but did he ever even consider the idea that he would need to go outside the organization no, to accomplish all that? because he was too loyal and because it never... Um, he, serving master in his own mind was serving within the organization. He did, however, say to Diamante at one point, I guess I'm just going to get used to living with ulcers because of the frustration that he felt about every single one of his ideas being denied. He was in charge of the centers, and he, wrote, he, he felt before they could get the centers started, he really needed to have rules for the center, so he wrote the rules for the centers, and I think when he was kicked out all those years later, they'd never, they'd never met to review the rules, and everything had to be reviewed, and then when his talks, he was going to send his recordings of his talks out, and then the board of directors decided that nobody could, nobody's talks could be mailed out to the centers unless they reviewed them first, Swami said, I'm speaking in the temples here. And yes, but they wanted to review them first. And so they reviewed his talk. And he said just in order to prove that they needed to review it, they found some little point. He talked about soul evolution. And uh, one of them said, the soul doesn't evolve. And Swami, you know, just like, yeah, it was. But it was just a complete, absolute clash of temperaments. Because their thought was, quote, why don't you just wait to be told what to do? You know, it's just that way of thinking. Rajasi understood 
that, you know, when you have somebody who can do things, you let them do it because he was an entrepreneur. But Swamiji, it never entered his conscious mind because it, it wouldn't have, he didn't feel it would have been right for him to have separated on his own. And that's why the whole thing had to blow up the way it blew up. And he never actually talk, ever really talked that much about the impact of Rajasi dying on his own mind. And, and you know, he never, he's never really talked that I remember very often about what he must have understood about his fate when that happened. It was rather that I myself just thought about it recently and thought, you know, he must have seen what that meant for him and just wondered how this was going to unfold. And he, always, he said many times, I was too loyal, Master, I would never have left on my own, but I could never do what Master wanted me to do within the organization. So the only choice was that there had to be an absolute, and violent is almost the word, you know, it just there had to be a, he had to be expelled, there was, and he had to be expelled definitively and absolutely, because there was no other way that he would have separated himself from that work. So God has his ways. It doesn't necessarily mean that their actions were correct because sometimes God needs an instrument and it might not be in the best interest of that instrument to have done what they did. But nonetheless, that didn't mean it didn't have to happen. So it's very, very peculiar and remains, just still remains peculiar. I guess that's, I said the word. There's no other way to go with that. But all of that has to do, and what the real point of that was, Swamiji was called to this enormously creative life. And, we, and, and in Art is a Hidden Message, um, when I taught that class for the first time, it was extremely interesting to me because I really grasped what I didn't know, which is why I teach all these classes on his books, because then I get to understand his books. I didn't really get, until I worked on that book, the what a close relationship there is between creativity and spiritual spirituality. That the capacity to be creative is a very, very important sadhana. And art is a very important sadhana because art allows us to give, to give form to our feelings and to attune ourselves on a deeper level with, with... And this is where Swami talks about art as a hidden message and the importance of doing art that's elevated and becoming a channel for refined art. Because when we learn to channel refined art, we're, we're learning to um, uh, attune ourselves on an intuitive level to a much higher vibration. And we might think that we're doing that, but the ability to be creative in that vibration is one of the ways that we both discover and develop that side of ourselves. And developing and discovering that side of ourselves brings us much closer to the divine, because the divine is that pure, elevated feeling. And when, we, when we're not creative in an artistic way, often that feeling side of ourselves does not flower. And one of the, and we, we become that too austere, a little bit of what I was talking about at the beginning of this class, where we're too mental about what we're doing, and we're too theoretical about it, and we're too withheld Art is one of the ways in which our energy runs free. And then we can tell from what we've created who we are. I mean, I certainly for myself, because writing has been the medium that's really trained me, it's been 
absolutely fundamental to my sadhana. And I've been working on it since I was in my 20s, and I've been failing at it for many decades, and then gradually really beginning to understand, you know, what that relationship is between intuition and inspiration and creativity. And I, it's just been, let's use the words, it's fundamental to my sadhana. So when I'm meditating and that aspect of myself asserts my, itself, it's, it's the same sadhana for me. Notwithstanding what Patanjali says here um, about being one-pointed, but that's the point that I need to follow at that, at that point. That's who I am. That's the level of consciousness that I'm on. And I don't mean that in an elevated way. It's just not given to me um, to be able to just push that aside. It doesn't feel like what God wants of me. So you know, we all have to work with this in our own way. Even earlier, in the very beginning, when I was just cooking in the kitchen, and I was, and this was like in 1971, and I had to run that kitchen, and I just like, I laughed. I said, I hope God is in the soybeans, because man, that is all I'm thinking about. And it was just a total one-pointed concentration at all times. Because I had to. It was the only way I could do it. And I meditated, but always in the back of my mind it was still going there. But I, I don't know. I just let it flow the way it was going to flow. It just seemed this is what's happening to me. I didn't want to be at war with myself. So you have to ask yourself, by, your, by their fruits you shall know them. You have to work with it in that way. Does that make sense? To everyone, it's very, very important. Art is a Hidden Message is a very important book, like all of his books. So you read Art is a Hidden Message, and then you try to compare it to Patanjali, and that's why we need living examples. And remember, Master said, you only have to do 10% of what I teach, but everybody's going to take a different 10%, and that's why I have to teach so much. So that's what we're working with here. Okay, any questions or thoughts? All right. That's the end of it for tonight. So, so we're sort of backwards and forwards. We did 121 and 123, so we have to do 122 next time. Then we'll go forward. We're good. Well, I'm going to I'm going to skip a class. The first class, the first Tuesday in August. There won't be a class, just in case you're curious. And then I guess there's spiritual renewal week in there, too. I said I wasn't going to miss any more this summer, but I made plans to be away. <laughs>